everyone hear me if I talk like this? No. Can you hear me if I talk like this? Still not. Can you hear me if I talk like this? All right. This will affect my posture. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, first and foremost, Suleiman, thank you for that, that essential introduction. Uh, his joke about the essence of life relates to one particular student in the class whose answer for every single question was, what was the answer? Oh, he's not listening right now. In any case, yeah, that's probably why his answer was always the essence of life for every single one. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, uh, it's, it's my privilege to be back here. Uh, just as uh, Imran was mentioning that he made the mistake of, of accepting the, the offer to, to teach, I answered an email from this person, Sahira, many years ago in blue, I think it might have actually been in royal blue ink, uh, asking to be part of this project that she was trying to launch, and, and still, no matter how hard I try, I cannot escape. So, I'm still here. So, uh, I want to share with you a few stories this evening before getting into the, the point, the, the real purpose that I'm here for, which is to get you to, to write checks on behalf or uh, to help out MLA. But before I get into that, uh, as Suleiman mentioned, uh, I'm Muslim chaplain at Loyola University. So Loyola has about 800 undergraduate Muslims. It's one of the larger Muslim populations uh, across the country, and it's one of the few that also has a Muslim chaplain. Now, what does a Muslim chaplain do? Nobody really knows. When they hired me to be a Muslim chaplain, I asked them, what am I supposed to do? And they said, we don't know, but the students wanted one. So I said, okay, fine. So we'll figure it out. The end result is that much of my work is what we would call pastoral care. Pastoral care means students come to the office with whatever questions they have, whatever problems they have, and on the one hand, I triage to figure out if this is something within my skill set or is this something that I need to refer the students to the wellness center for or perhaps to an academic advisor. And even though technically my job 50-50, 50% is teaching, 50% is chaplaining, probably about 80% of my work in terms of time commitment is chaplaining. And I'm never not on call. Even while sitting here, I've been getting texts from students with various issues. And so this is, I'm completing, inshallah, my third year as cha official chaplain at Loyola. Prior to this, I was probably unofficial chaplain for three years uh, uh, before that. But I wanted to give you a moment to, to see what is going on in the minds of Muslim undergrads in a big city in the United States in 2017. But to do this, we have to go back uh, a little bit. The most common issue that students were coming to me with last school year, so 2015, 2016, the most common issue that they were coming to me with was anxiety. Okay? More than issues of faith, more than academic problems, more than family questions, the issue was anxiety, that they were feeling tense. And this is something real. I spoke to people in our wellness center to find out what's going on. They suggested, these are our, our counselors, our, our professional therapists, our psychiatrists on campus, they suggested the current generation of millennials do not have as much resilience 
as, as they need. And this is a good word to keep, your, to keep in mind. This is one of the buzzwords of, of pastoral work these days. Resilience, the ability to navigate life no matter what hits you. And as I reflected over this, I connected all of this anxiety to one specific event that happened a little over two years ago. This was the shooting of those three Syrian kids in North Carolina. I think we all remember it. It got national attention. What didn't get attention, of course, is that there was a young Kenyan student in Kansas City who was also murdered that same week, but that's, that's, uh, that's secondary for the point I want to make. That from that day, that evening, that week, the number of students who were visiting me in the office skyrocketed. Okay. And the number one complaint over and over again was anxiety. And what were, what were they saying? They were saying that this fear that they've been taught in the masjid to have, that, you know, society, people in our society are developing this hatred of us, now the dam is beginning to break. Okay. And so keep in mind what I'm saying here, that they're already being conditioned to have this sense, this feeling that people in society hate them. Okay. These are children who are younger than 9-11. They have no memory of 9-11. Their entire intellectual life, the President of the United States is a black American man, and the entire time, their intellectual life, America has been at war with Muslims. This is what's going on in their minds. And so 2015, 2016, anxiety after anxiety after anxiety after anxiety. And then usually what happens is that summer is where everybody relaxes. Summer is also my time off, nine months of ultra-intensity, and then summer I do nothing, I hide from the entire world. And, but you remember what was taking place this past year, this past summer. There was the shootings in Orlando. There was bombings in so many countries, coup attempt in Turkey. There was even a bombing in Medina, of all places. And what then happened is that when the students began the school year this past year, they seemed to be out of energy. Usually when you begin the school year, you're full of energy, you're full of excitement, you're seeing all your old friends. Here the Muslim students in particular seemed completely drained, completely depleted. And what took place then in this school year? Okay. Again, I'm giving you what is going on in the mind of our young Muslims, meaning the kids who are just a little bit older than our MLA children. So the school year begins with the same complaint, anxiety after anxiety after anxiety. And then as we got closer to the election, the number of people visiting me with this problem had increased. And in most cases, depending upon how much I can help, I would refer the students to the Wellness Center. Many of the students go. One thing I'm happy to share is that we're developing more and more of appreciation for mental health as a real thing in our community, and inshallah, that'll continue to, to increase. But then we got to Tuesday of the election. And on the one hand, this is funny, but on the other hand, this is very serious. Students were contacting me from about 5 p.m., 7 p.m. that evening, saying he's going to win. I was saying, no chance, he's not going to win. He can't win. The system is set for her. And they kept calling me, texting me, no, he's going to win. And I kept saying, not going to happen. And then by 10 o'clock, you would all know what was happening. And then I thought, oh my goodness, he's going to win. And then all night, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that whole time, nonstop, I was getting calls and texts from students who are no longer full of anxiety. Now they're full of terror. Okay. What is going to happen to us now? Okay. Now, move forward 
in that period from the election all the way through inauguration. Students are still afraid. Students are exhausted. And what else are they exhausted from? Something that I think every person in this room probably feels more than we realize, that at least for the past 15 years, and for some of us much longer, we've had to be the representatives of Islam. Okay? That we've had to have a consciousness of what people are thinking of us. Okay? Whether we go to the grocery store, whether we go to the mall, whether we go to the movies. Okay? And the fact that you're giving this additional attention, this is what an uh, old black American scholar, his name is W.E.B. Du Bois, he calls it a double consciousness, where you're thinking about yourself, and then you're also thinking about what other people think of you. Uh, that in itself would exhaust you. Okay? And I think in our community, we do have a certain amount of exhaustion dealing with all of this. But then when we got to the inauguration day, that week, it was no longer anxiety. It was no longer fear. Now students, literally undergrad students, were coming to my office crying. Okay? They can't conceive of what's about to happen now. Okay. Remember all the events that were leading up, there was an increase in attack on Muslim sites, there was an increase in attack on Jewish sites taking place all across the country, and so now students have reached another low. Okay. And the inauguration happens, and we've seen what's been going on since then, but then I also had to bring to attention, to the students' attention, that there are some very significant bright points here. That when our current president tried to launch the Muslim ban, you and I all saw what was happening, that is that people all across the country were getting up, saying, you cannot take our country away from us, right? It was happening at protests at the airport, it was happening with many lawyers who were providing pro bono services, with the simple point, you do not own this country any more than we do, this is our country, and our country follows a rule of law, and if you're going to violate it, we're going to push you at every single step, we're going to push back at every single step. And this is something very, very hopeful that has been happening, okay? which did calm a lot of students. But now bring us to about February, so just a month and a half ago. The most common issue that students are now complaining about, okay, and I'm still trying to make sense of this, is problems of faith. Okay? How do I know I should follow Islam? How do I know there's a God? How do I know that the Prophet, peace be upon him, is the Prophet? How do I know Islam is the truth? Etc., etc., etc. I still haven't been able to figure out why suddenly there's been a surge. And when I say a surge, I don't mean five people are coming forward. I'm saying maybe 50%, maybe 60% of the students visiting me in a given week are giving the same problem. And to give you an idea, in a given day, I probably have about 10 students. On a busy day, like the day after, the Monday after inauguration, I had 40 students visiting me in one particular day. Okay. So you can do the math to give you an idea of how many students we're talking about out of the 800 undergrads. Okay. And, and so I should take a moment to then talk about how I address this with the students. Okay. One thing that I've discovered, not in this past spring, but doing this type of work doing this type of work for well over 20 years is that 100% of the time that a young Muslim has a crisis of faith, it's always been the same cause. Okay. 
So I'll put this in perspective and I'll get into the cause. Go all the way back to around the year 2000, I go to a conference in New Jersey and just to hear a bunch of people speak and there's a young man probably in his mid-twenties walking around trying to get into debates with everyone there about free will predestination. This is something I talked about briefly last year also. That he was arguing, okay, if Allah knows all and he controls everything, then how can he have free will? But if you don't have free will, how can the day of judgment be fair? Right? Think about this and process this. And he's going around from person to person to person, trying to debate every single Muslim in the room to tear down Islam. Pakistani kid from Lahore. And then there was this, this young, well, I called him a punk back then, this young man named Numan Ali Khan, who is not famous at all, he said, okay, I can't answer these questions, go talk to him, and that was me. Okay. And I'm listening to this guy probably for about three hours. Okay. I'm missing the entire speech. I went to New Jersey. Nobody goes from Chicago to New Jersey voluntarily. And I'm here going to New Jersey to hear a conference. No time to hear anything. Okay. And then after a while, he breaks down and he starts crying. And he says, okay, here's the real issue. My brother died in a car accident six months ago, and I can't cope with it. Okay. Now think about what's taking place. He has a tragedy, and he doesn't know how to cope with it. And so this leads him to then questioning faith. Why didn't, why didn't Allah help me? Which then leads him to then feel anger towards Allah. And his way to illustrate anger towards Allah is to start trying to attack every single Muslim. Okay. And I'm telling you, 100% of the cases since then have always been the same issue. And what is the same issue? A broken heart. Okay. Sometimes the broken heart is related to a tragedy that someone faces. Okay. Sometimes, more often, it's resent. And it's resent against the parents. And most, most often, it's resent against the fathers. And so these students who had been visiting me over and over again in the past month and a half. Faith problem after faith problem after faith problem. Tell me your story, tell me what you're feeling, what are your, what are your thoughts? And when I let them talk long enough, it always goes back to the same thing. That a person's theology in their heart is influenced by the satisfaction of their heart. If they have pain in their heart, it affects their theology. If they have pain in their heart, it affects their faith. Now, let's take another step back. What should religion provide you with? Why do we speak of Islam? Why do we speak of Christianity? Why do we speak of Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc.? On the one hand, it should explain things that are the unknown. Where do we come from? Where are we headed? Is there a creator? How does everything work? Okay. But deeper than that, more practically, religion should help you navigate life. Okay. The easy times of life, how do you navigate that? With gratitude. The difficult times of life, how do you navigate that? By persevering through and keeping a good impression of God. When you have to make difficult choices in life, how do you navigate that? You make the best choice you can, praying to Allah, istikhara, and if you find you make a mistake, seek forgiveness and take a different direction. Or the simple difficulty of obedience. What are we saying here? That the purpose... A major purpose for religion is to help you get through life. And I'll tell you, having studied philosophies all across traditions, not claiming to be a major scholar or anything like that, but having dabbled in traditions all across uh, secular and religious, I'll tell you openly, even if all religion was made up, okay, 
It still helps you navigate life better than not having religion. Okay. Why? Think about what we are saying about how life works. We're saying that things are bigger than what you see right in front of you. We're saying that there's a creator who gives you so much value that to lose one of you, it's as though you've lost all humanity. Right? That the default relationship that the creator has with you and I is Rahmah. Which means no matter how I see life playing out, my goal is to figure out what is the Rahmah in what is happening. The mercy in what is happening. And what else? We're saying that all this life that we say in every single Sunday school, including MLA, all this life is a test. This isn't the real thing. This is a test in the examinations on the Day of Judgment. That this life is an illusion, full of challenges, as well as full of wonderful things. Okay. And something that I'm telling you that sounds so simple that every single one of us should help you navigate life than it does for most people. Okay. And I'm telling you this from experienced people of religion, especially anecdotally in my experience, Muslims and Christians do the best in terms of dealing with struggle. Okay. And the people at the bottom, in my anecdotal experience, are people with no faith. Okay. Because what do you have then? If you're saying that there's no God, if you're saying there's no hereafter, if you're saying there's nothing after this, then the end result is that you're fertilizer. Right? The end result is that your loved one is just fertilizer. How do you cope with that? So then how do we address it with these young people? The first thing that they're getting from me is compassion. Again, Rahmah. That it's strange that for many of these young people, I'm the first Desi uncle that they've had who actually listens to them. Okay. Some of them actually call me uncle. This is better than Dada. But anyway, the point I'm making <laughs> is that part of the reason that this is new for them is that they're not getting this from other places. So now the question for each and every one of us in this room, we're all parents, mashallah, we would bend over backwards to do anything for our children. What does your child think of you? If you are being honest, if your child is being honest, what does your child think of you? Does your child think of you as someone who is full of love? Does your child think of you as someone who is full of anger? Does your child think of you as someone who is fair? And for all of us, it'll be a mixture of those things. But what I'm saying, what I'm asking is for you and I to really have an honest self-assessment. Because my job, in theory, shouldn't exist. Right? If we, in our families, were able to handle everything, and I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm the father of, of, of two girls. One girl, uh, she did her first driving with me today. She drove my car for the first time. And before I let her, I was terrified because I didn't want to get into a car accident. But then after that, I got, I got calm. And she just felt so proud. And I felt so happy because now she can do errands for me. But anyway, the point I'm making here, <clears throat> what does your child think of you? Because you control that. And what is the most common feeling that these children have towards their parents? These undergrads who are specifically coming to me with faith issues, is that either their parents are tyrants, and this could be just their perception, or their parents are absent. And absent doesn't mean that they're not home. Absent means emotionally absent. Okay. Meaning, again, as parents, we will give our children every single tool we possibly can to help them excel. 
But the question to ask yourself is, do you give your child nurturing? Do you tell, do you tell your child, I am proud of you? Okay. Do you tell your child, I love you? Now, I once gave a chutzpah at MCC, which is a much more difficult crowd than IFS. And if, you know, if you've been there recently, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I gave a chutzpah talking about this, saying you need to tell your child, I love you, in this culture, when they're growing up here. And then, as is usually the case when I give a chutzpah, a whole line of people stand getting ready to talk to me, and usually they're coming to tell me everything that I've done wrong in the chutzpah. But this time, thank you. They're coming with their problems related to their children, in one specific case, a man comes to me and says to me, you know, my son is misbehaving, he's out of control, he's 13, I don't know what to do. And I've asked him the same question in this conversation with him, how often do you tell your child you love him? And he goes, he knows I love him. Okay? And that's the mistake. You and I are in an audiovisual culture. Okay? Your children are bombarded with sight and sound all day long. And so how often are they getting sight and sound from you and I? And it's just a simple point. And I'm telling you, it's such a simple point that it will prevent many faith problems with many of our children. But if the child thinks that the father is a tyrant, that's something very different. That I don't have time to address right now. But then things got even more serious. And I'm sorry I have to take this serious turn, but I want you to really get a sense of what's going on with the kids to understand how serious this is. Before getting to this, what's happening today, not in the earlier spring, how do I address these, these matters with these students? With some of them, we go through Quran together. With others, we go through Hadith together. With others, we go through Rumi together. With others, we'll go through some secular thinkers together. And what is of primary benefit to them is the compassion. The intellectual engagement helps them because they have someone who's respecting their intelligence, who's making them come to answers for themselves. But I'm telling you, the primary benefit, the primary way to save your child's faith is compassion. Okay. Because then it reaches what we are at today. And this is, I'm sorry, this is so serious. I don't want to turn into a downer, but I will say some happy things also. Yesterday I did a janaza for a young man. Okay. And it's believed to be a suicide. Okay. And I mentioned to you a month and a half ago, the most common issue that students were coming to, myth, come to, coming to me with was challenges of faith. Now it's suicide ideation. Okay. And what am I describing for you? It's a step-by-step-by-step uh, -by -step -by -step breakdown of our students. I want you to seriously consider that. I'm not saying this as a scandal or to be alarmist. I'm saying this is real. Yeah. The student that I was telling you who just texted me, 746, is another one of those students. And on Thursday, I get a text from another student of mine saying, I need help with this. My friend has attempted. Yeah. This is what's going on with my beloved brothers and sisters. And so there's a second thing that you and I need to do. One is we have to give compassion to our, old ch our own children. Number two, I need more of us in this room who will reach out and be mentors. Okay. Who will be mentors for other children. Maybe other children in this room. Because you and I know, if I tell my child something, maybe my child will hear it. If another parent tells ch my, child, my child the same thing, oh, they'll understand everything, right? Because when we talk to our children, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Right. 
But the second thing I'm, I'm obliging all the elders in this room is you have to figure out how to be a mentor. A mentor for our young brothers, a mentor for our young sisters. A friend of mine was having a conversation with a very prominent Jewish leader, one of the most prominent Jewish leaders in the country. And as, as you would expect, they got into a debate about Israel-Palestine. That wasn't the point of the meeting. But in this conversation, they were talking about the Jewish community and the Muslim community. And the Jewish leader said to these Muslim leaders, there's one thing I can guarantee you, that you don't have, meaning the Muslims that we have, he says that any young Jewish boy or girl who's growing up in America, okay, religious or secular, whatever their outlook is, no matter what field they want to go into, we will mentor them. Okay. And then he says, pointing to us, I guarantee you, you don't have this. Okay. And here's a simple test. Again, for you and I to ask ourselves, number one, what do my parents think of me? Number two, how much time am I dedicating to the elder children in my community? So with that, I still have to make a moment, going before going back to this, to express appreciation for all the people in our school who are putting in the time for everyone else's kids. So I'm going to ask you just to give them a big round of applause before I continue. then on what to do regarding what's happening right now, and I'm afraid of what will be the next step down. It's almost as though I'm waiting for the school year to end in about two weeks, so it doesn't get any worse. But I want you to, to think, this is not something that I can do alone. This is me, one person, addressing 800 young people at Loyola. DePaul has 900 Muslims. Northwestern has about 300. University of Chicago has about 200. And then UIC probably has a few thousand. Okay. Young people who are in need of compassionate mentoring. Okay. Because what else is taking place? Why are, are these children breaking down? Part of the issue is family. But you and I know the big 800-pound gorilla in the room. That's his presidential administration. Okay. That's affecting all of us. That has all of us concerned. But you and I remember a time where things were much easier. You and I have been inculcated with a level of faith where we still understand that, okay, no matter what happens to us, Allah Ta'ala is not going to give us anything we can't handle. The kids don't know that. But the point being that as this administration gets worse and worse and worse, there's no indication that things are going to get better anytime soon. I have to say to you the same thing that I say to the students. I don't know where we're going to be in a year. Good. But that does not give us the permission to give up. So now I'm going to tell you some fun stories. At the same time that all this is happening, Pakistani girl, and no, she didn't grow up here, she grew up not too far from here. She's dating a Hindu boy. Okay. And then he's introducing her to a whole bunch of haram things. And then on his own, he gets interested in Islam. Okay. So she sends him my way. So we start talking, we start meeting, and uh, I give him a biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him. I say, okay, read this, tear it apart any way you can. Islam is not going to break. Okay. Come back with all of your questions. And then he comes back to me a week later saying he wants to start praying. 
So he finds a website and I tell him, okay, memorize Al-Fatiha, memorize the first surah of the Quran, however long it takes, take your time, come back to me. The next day he comes, he memorizes the entire namaz. Okay. And then his Pakistani Muslim girlfriend starts texting me. Why is he spending so much time with you? He should be spending time with me. So I go, you better improve your Islam, sister. Good. Good. And he's ready to take his shahada. And then he starts asking me, okay, what am I going to have to give up? And I said, you're going to have to give up drinking. And he says, but all the guys I hang out with to drink are Muslims. And he started going to Juma. He says, all those guys in the front row were guys I was with last Saturday. Okay. So he takes his shahada, mashallah. <laughs> then he starts texting me that all his Muslim friends don't like him anymore. Because now he's telling them you have to stop drinking. Now he's telling them you have to stop backbiting. You have to stop gossiping. So I say, okay, come back, come back, come back to my office, and let's figure out how to take it nice and slowly. But unfortunately, the girl is, she can't handle his Islam. He's become too militant for her. He prays all of his prayers now. MashaAllah. He became Muslim about a month and a half ago. And so, I don't know what the future is of these two. You know, I call them the happy couple, and who knows. But the point I'm making is that while we have all these students who are also breaking down, about a quarter, no, probably about a fifth of the students who are visiting me are also non-Muslims, who are all interested in Islam, who are all coming because they want to learn the deen. Yeah. Nobody did anything. The best da'i for them, the best caller to Islam for them, has been Donald Trump. And it's very strange. But student after student after student, every single background. So how do we make sense of this now? My beloved brothers and sisters, wrapping up. On the one hand, we're having a breakdown. On the other hand, we're having a rise. And this is what's taking place in almost every single campus throughout the country. Okay. So what am I saying? There's a reason we're here right now, observing, celebrating, commemorating MLA. MLA is a modern, moderate, humble attempt to give an Islam to our children that is relevant to their lives, that is compassionate, that will help them navigate through life. And so my third suggestion Number one, look at your relationship with your child. What does your child think of you? Number two, how much are you mentoring children outside? This is something you control. And number three, if you don't have time for number two, at the very least, you can give. Good. And so all of us have this at our table. Good. And our ask is right in the middle of the book. And while you're opening up the book, um, I'm asking you to open up the book. There it is, Okay. While you're opening up the book, I also want you to look at this beautiful letter from Mohi, uh, from Dr. Mohi. Uh, one thing that I love about the fact of MLA is that it's in very, very good hands now, mashallah. Right? That I can step away and be limited to only giving an occasional speech. Okay. But now, last year our ask. Uh, 
Uh, I'm gonna see what the number is, but we used all the funds that we were asked exactly for what we used them. For, we asked to uh, we asked them for. This year, the MLA ask for 2017 is 5,000 for security, and it's unfortunate that we have to invest in security, but you and I know it's a reality. 2,000 for professional development, 2,000 for service and interfaith projects, and then 16,000 for an automatic door for the physically challenged okay, to make our building modern. So our ask is $25,000. I'm not going to do the Milana style of fundraising where I'm saying who can give us $25,000 unless anybody wants to. But I am asking for you to pick an amount. If we have 25 people who give 1,000, we're done. And I think we can do that. And again, what are you investing in? You are not simply investing in this school. You are investing in the next generation. And so, I'm going to leave it at that. Are we having kids who are walking around collecting money? Anyone? Moderators? Maybe I'll just walk around and collect the money. Maybe that's what, that's, if maybe that's what we'll do. Hey. Okay, here it comes. All right. So you're going to see the young people walking around. Oh, uh, uh, Sahara, who should the checks be to? Should they be to Islamic Foundation? Hey, Mohidina. Who should the checks be to? Islamic Foundation? Islamic Foundation, please. The check should be to Islamic Foundation. And please put MLA in the memo. So here we have our bright future leaders walking around with boxes. And so that's all we're asking. Very, very small amount, inshallah. And we'll give them the funds that they need to do everything they want for this next year. So anyways, with that, looking forward, as I said, I have no idea where we're going to be in a year. Uh, and there's no boundaries in terms of where this administration is going, but I am saying if you and I can work together, okay, and not just within our community, but across communities, then we can handle whatever it is that is coming our way. Right? Because as my students are falling into despair, I tell them that despair is not an option. Despair is the way of Shaitan. That if you have hope, meaning the, the fact that they've come to my office means that they have hope, then inshallah we'll get through. So with that, thank you very much for your time. And may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Okay, apparently we have another raffle. And they're making me do it. And the winner of the raffle, oh, it's me. Okay. 199165. Seriously? Uh, Anisha's winning everything this month. <laughs>
Okay, once again, thank you so much. Okay. Oh, thank you.